0: So first of all, thank you for agreeing to come on. And I would like to thank Nicole for setting this up as well. Uh, so I'm very <laughs> excited uh to have you on and you're dressed for the occasion, I see. <laughs> well uh,
1: green, uh, which is, you know, the truth is always grey, you know, it's neither black, black or white. But it's just coincidental, I just uh, <laughs> okay, I just kind of agree. But thanks Walid for having me on. Oh, no and problem. congratulations on your election commentary. I think many people thought that you did an excellent job of okay. your commentary on election <laughs>
0: Okay, thank you. I appreciate that. Uh, so let's uh, let's start off. Uh, well, I don't know. I I, don't, I didn't mention this earlier, but before we get to the questions, I just wanted to say I think you are one of the most underrated MPs uh, on the opposition side. <laughs> I think a lot of uh, attention is usually devoted to Mr. Pritam Singh or Dr. J. Maslim, and rightly so. They are incredible people in their own right. But I think uh, somehow you do not get the media attention that you deserve, I think. I think often what <laughs> you say in parliament makes a lot of sense. Uh, so, so hopefully you can share some of those ideas today. So the first thing I wanted to ask you on is the minimum wage. And can you explain in really, really simple and layman terms why the minimum wage is superior to what we have now, the progressive wage model?
1: So thanks for that question, Walid. Before I jump into that, I uh, just wanted to say that sometimes it's good to be underrated. Uh, <laughs> I think it was George W. Bush who once said that uh, he, he likes people to underestimate him. But, uh, and he, he that, definitely uh, got his well. wish. But,
0: people definitely <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, yeah, There was a lot
1: to underestimate, some might say, but <laughs> hopefully there's not a lot to underestimate. Right. I mean, but, uh, so thanks for the question. Let me dive in. So what we have advocated in our manifesto and also in Parliament a number of times is a basic minimum wage for all Singaporean workers at one thousand three hundred dollars per month of take-home pay. Now, the government's model for dealing with this issue is the progressive wage model, where they go industry by industry. So they've done it cleaners with security guards, with landscaping. Our lift technicians will be next. So they take each industry in turn they get the employers and the unions and the government around the table to try to work out, you know, what is reasonable for employers to pay. It's a negotiation process, and they work something out. And whether, you know, what they work out is fair, is good, you know, that is up to the public to decide. Uh, But, you know, you go industry by industry, it takes time to work out the negotiated solution. And when you look at the... Low wage workers you know there are actually a number of uh, 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 the number varies from thirty two thousand to a hundred thousand depending on how you define it but people who are earning one thousand three hundred or less depending on how you define it take home versus basic, including overtime, including bonus you know it's it's not a small number in a wallet it's it's not a small number it's a large number of Singaporeans uh, who you know if you think about it it is very difficult for them to survive in a high cost country like Singapore with that low level of wages and we ask the government in parliament you know, how long will it take to implement progressive wage across all the sectors mm. in this last mile effort because there are many different sectors you know, and it can be quite fragmented and not all these sectors uh, will easily take to progressive wage model in the sense that you, know, you need licensing levers, you need some degree of organization among employers to have a bargaining partner so all these things need to be done uh, and they couldn't answer how long it would take. So what we are saying is that you can have a basic minimum wage that is across the board at 1300 take home and you can still work on the progressive wage model sector by sector to come up with wage laddering above that level you know, that is appropriate right. for different industry conditions. It's not an either-or right. situation. Many, many countries uh, have minimum wage. Of course, the argument is that it will kill SMEs, but really, if you look at the discussion within the business community, there was an article in Business Times about it. Many business leaders do agree, you know, many entrepreneurs do agree that they have to pay a living wage to their employees to get employee engagement and commitment and productivity. And they do recognize that they have to move in that direction. And for us in the Workers' Party, we're not just calling for minimum wage, we have also called for many measures to help SMEs in terms of things like an exim bank, control the rentals, support for upgrading and productivity, enhancement, and, you know, many, many different things. So it's a total package. You know, we can't cherry-pick one idea from the workers' party and say, oh, you know, you're going to kill SMEs. Uh, because I don't think uh, that you will. All right. And, uh, you know, when when they say that it may kill jobs, where's the proof of that? You know, I think uh, James Slim talked about many studies that have been done, uh, including meta-studies, to show that if you don't set the minimum wage too high, do not kill jobs. You know, you just get employers paying more to their workers, and then they will be nudged to try and upgrade the productivity right. to make that uh, viable. Right. So, so just to just to clarify, so you
0: think the standard economic theory about how, I mean, minimum wage is a market distortion, right? So, uh, you do not think that will affect employment employment in any way, shape, or form?
1: Well, I think the experience of other countries shows that if you do not set that wage too high, uh, it does not uh, tend to destroy or to jobs. You know, there is a lot of academic evidence out there because it's a subject that has been studied a great deal. Right. Most developed countries have some form of minimum wage right. and therefore economists and governments have studied this issue to find out whether, hey, you know, if I remove the minimum wage, am I going to create more jobs? Because governments right. need to know that, right? If the minimum right. wage is something bad or negative, if I could remove it and create more jobs to soak up the unemployment, then, you know, many governments would want to do that. Right. But Because the evidence has shown that if you you set it at a level that is not too high, you will not destroy jobs. So that's why minimum wage policies are found in many countries. And what is the level that is too high? There are different figures that different economists have postulated. I think there is one figure that that some people use, which is about uh, not above, uh, say, 40% of the median wage. There there are different figures out there. The level we have proposed is basic. It is uh, not too high. We don't believe that there is any evidence that it will erode jobs and you know, while it, um, they've also talked about how the progressive wage model is a consultative process with employers. Well, right. you can set a national minimum wage based on research hmm. that involves an element of consultation too. And we said that you can get employers around the table. And as I've said, you know, from the discussions in the business community, I do sense that many entrepreneurs are open to this idea and feel that it's an idea this time has come.
0: Right. Okay, so... Uh... Uh, not just uh, foreign economists as well. Even even in Singapore, you know, there's there's a healthy debate. I think, and Professor Linda Lim actually wrote an article advocating the minimum wage on academia.sg. Uh, so for anyone who's yes, interested, uh, can can check that out. Uh, the title is the economic case for a minimum wage. I mean, it's based on a podcast. Basically, it's an it's an article uh, on academia.sg. So. Uh, can I just clarify why is why is it monthly? Why is the proposal monthly and not uh, a minimum hourly wage? Because the danger with the not the danger the downside of the monthly minimum wage it excludes a lot of people from the gig economy. So this is a question by Daniel and Professor uh, Yen Chong. So. So would an hourly minimum wage be better or does the WP see that as a stepping stone towards an hourly minimum wage? What, what is the party stance?
1: Thanks Walid and I think that's a great uh, question. So we framed it in terms of $1,300 per month take home because that is a figure that most people will be able to understand and uh, relate to as a reference point so people can see you know, at what level it is compared to you know, salary benchmarks that they have in mind but it's meant to be a reference point. So right. it can be worked, extrapolated, it can be uh, translated into an hourly or daily rated uh, kind of pay that is prorated to that basic level of 1300 per month. So it's a, it's a great question. And I think, you know, any process to set a national minimum wage, which we are recommending to have a process that is consultative, that is fact-based, research-based, would have to take into account different kinds of income profile. And like, you know, some people are you know, on daily rated situations or hourly
0: rates as well. Right, okay. Okay, thanks. So, uh, even though it is an an economic issue, ultimately it is a political issue as well, right? All issues generally are political, especially if it's in parliament, uh, it will be political. So, politically, do you think, and this is based on Alfian's uh, question in the comments, so do you think the resistance to minimum wage uh, is simply because it comes from WP, uh, and therefore, uh, would it have been better if it didn't come from WP? Because if it came from WP, maybe there is more reluctance on the government side to actually implement it. What do you think?
1: Well, you know, Walid, that's uh, another good question I don't know. I think it's a question that should be perhaps asked of the PAP. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> they would know the answer to that yeah. question because they know why they, they do things. Uh, I can't speculate on their intentions and motives, but I will say that in Parliament, the uh, PAP ministers and spokespersons, including Senior Minister Taman and uh, Minister Josephine Tio, if you look at the speeches that they made, particularly in September, they did say that the, the distance between the WP minimum wage proposal right. and PWM is not a vast distance. you know?
0: right.
1: They are not radically different ideas, and PWM right. is a form of uh, minimum wage. And there was some attempt at some times, it seems to me, to try to project that there is there is not a gulf between these two positions. Right. But at other times, you, know, you do see and hear people talking as if uh, there is a huge difference between these positions, and the PPP's position was very dangerous. So, I don't know. So at the end of the day, I think right. we have to uh, ask the AP this question.
0: Right. And in fact, I think it's progress that, uh, that uh, you mentioned uh, SM Thurman and Minister Josephine saying that the distance is not that. And in principle, there's agreement. I think that, that, that seems new new to me as well. Uh, just one final question on the minimum, which how did, uh, this is uh, based on a commenter's question, how did WP decide that 1,300 is enough?
1: That's, that's a great question. So we decided that based on the government's own figure for average household expenditure on basic necessities. So the latest figure for this uh, AH EBN. Uh, was given uh, based on a parliamentary question I asked, I think in 2019, and that was 1300 per month, and that was seen as what was necessary to support a family of four, uh, just to cover basic necessities. I believe that excludes transport, so it's really very, very basic, it's very minimal, it's kind of a subsistence level. So we thought right. that we need some research peg, and it has to be research-based, right? I think right. we put, put across ideas, we have the responsibility to say that uh, these ideas are good for Singapore. They are responsible ideas. If we were in government, those ideas would be workable. It would not have unintended consequences, bad side effects, uh, cure that's worse than the disease. You know, we have that responsibility. We take that responsibility very, very seriously in the Workers Party. So we, we pegged our figure for minimum wage to that uh, average household expenditure on basic necessity right. that the government itself has come up with. Right,
0: so $1,300 probably is close to the... We don't have an official poverty
1: line, right? But you say it's close. closed. Uh, that is... uh, we don't have an official poverty line exactly. And uh, in fact, uh, some of my colleagues in the past did raise this, that we should have an official poverty line so that we can see how well we're doing. You know, right. The uh, national effort to really lift up our lowest paid workers, our most struggling families. We should know what success looks like. You know? We should measure progress. Right. And uh, we should have a poverty line.
0: Okay, okay. Thanks for that. I think that that was very uh, very clear, and I think, uh, I mean, people can make their minds up based on uh, the different arguments. But I think the, the fact that we're having such a healthy discourse on this is progress for the for the entire country. I think. Uh, so the next question, uh, based on a recent talk that Dr. PJ Tam gave, it was quite provocative in in many ways, uh, and uh, he. It was basically, I think, a no holds barred talk and he really uh, was criticizing political parties throughout the spectrum, right? Uh, and but no holds barred, like this one, huh? <laughs> <laughs> This one is a bit milder, yeah, I think so. No, some holds barred. So, <laughs> <laughs> so he, he, uh, he said that uh, WP is part of the problem and not part of the solution. So as a senior member of the WP, how do you feel?
1: Well, I think that Dr. Tam is certainly entitled to his opinion that's the first thing I'll say, and I think we never shy away from criticism criticism and debate are healthy things. Uh, I remember seeing a lot of critical comments on uh, my social media platforms you know, over the years and even during, during the election sometimes i will I'll respond to some of the people who post such comments. I think that's healthy you know i mean it's disagreement does not necessarily mean disrespect. So I think I would respect the views of people who say that they don't agree with us in the Workers' Party because we don't go far enough. Right? And that is not a new position. I think right. Right. various people and groups have taken that kind of position before. But you know, Wallet, how I would look at it is uh, this way. Like. I think for us in the Workers' Party, we take our responsibility as you know a party in Parliament very, very seriously. So any ideas... We put forward any positions we take have to be implementable have to be workable have to be responsible they, they they would be ideas that we would be able to take up and implement if we were in government you know we do not say things for the sake of posturing we do not say things to play a brinkmanship game just to score a point and then later on we will turn around and say Oh actually we didn't really mean that you know just saying it just to get some support from certain segments i mean that is not uh, the game that we play. So we look at society, politics, the economy, the realities of Singapore, you know, we look at where we are and then we look at where we would like to go. And we figure out how do we get from A to B, you know, how do we move ahead, how do we move forward. And for a political party like the Workers' Party, which has to represent you know a broad mass of people, has to speak for different groups of Singaporeans, represent the interests of different constituents, has to be a national party, you know, for a party like us. I think we have to look at how we get from A to B, and that process may not involve taking 100 steps ahead of what the society is ready to do, what the society is ready to work with and support. You know, we have to make our case, persuade people to support our ideas, and we have to take a stepwise approach and uh, support ideas that can move us in the right direction towards uh, the kind of ideals that we have. Mm. So taking a hundred steps ahead of society and saying, hey guys, you've got to catch up with, with me. You know, that is, that is fine. Uh, that is the role of the activist, I would say. You know? mm. That is the role of civil society. And that's an important role. That's a very important role. Every healthy society has to have a healthy civil society, has to have activists who try to change public opinion, right. and more public opinion. So, so activists must be,
0: must be to the left or to the right of political parties based on what you say because political parties would tend to cluster around the center and then activists need needs to be a bit more controversial or activists need, need to be a bit more controversial a bit more bold is that is that what you're saying
1: well what i'm saying is activists can afford to go 50 steps or 100 steps ahead of what society is prepared to do Our political parties have to carry the society with them mm. so we need to say hey we're going to take a few steps ahead and we need to convince the majority of citizens to follow us and then if we can convince them to do that then maybe in future we can take another few steps and convince them and so on and so forth And that's how we move from a to b but you know you can have political parties who represent uh, people the majority and then you can also have activists in civil society in my speech in september in parliament i Try to put up a very forceful case, you know, for the importance of an independent civil society. I said right. that government funding support for civil society should right. not be seen, you know, in any way tied to civil civil society groups not criticizing the government, for example. Right. You know, and that, uh, that's very very important. So I, I, I hope that we will have an even more. In fact, I think Singapore has some way to go. Right. We need to have more space, uh, more support for civil society groups financially and otherwise to come up with independent research and ideas put their case to the public uh, so that is the complementary role i see uh, between,
0: right okay
1: uh, parties in parliament and, and society right. right thanks uh, thanks for that so i think
0: uh, i mentioned this uh, just before the elections for instance i think some uh, some uh, politicians maybe need to be clearer about their role and whether they see themselves as activists or politicians Uh, But that would be assuming that there is a dichotomy between the two, right? So, in episode three, I I had a discussion with NMP, Ms. Quick Xiaoyin, uh, on this, and I asked whether politicians and parliamentarians, should they be followers of public opinion or should they shape public opinion? And she said, obviously, it's both, right? Uh, what, What do you think, based on what you said? So, it seems to me that you're saying that parties should be, reacting and reflecting public opinion more than shaping public opinion?
1: Well, I think that you have to do both. And uh, it's a very, very important point. So what I was trying to say just now about the metaphor of you know going a few steps ahead right. of society, it's really about you know having your ideas and having your vision and your principles. And I think that's what we do have in the Workers' Party. If you look at what we've been doing and saying over the years, we've taken very principled positions even on civil liberties issues, political... Right. Uh, issues, we argued against the government's stand on Ofma, uh, for example, and uh, in our manifesto we talk about media freedom, uh, about institutional independence, you know, so we, we have principal positions, but it's it's really about c- having to carry the society with you and therefore, you know, you may not be able to, to run ahead of public opinion too far, but you know, mm. you have to take a step-wise approach and say, you know what? If, if we were to become the government tomorrow, what is implementable right now? Right. In terms of what we can be one on board with, what is fiscally and you know, s- sustainable in other ways uh, than fiscally, and what can we really implement? And it's a question of how do we get from A to B, you know? So a uh, political party has to seek to make gains, seek to do things that are practical, realisable, seek to carry the majority of people with you, you know, whereas an activist uh, does have the... Uh, the role, I think, in most cases, to to not be limited by that, you know, and they can go ahead and actually try and change public opinion, and take a hundred steps ahead, or fifty steps ahead, and and that is as it should be, you know. Right. I think society needs both Right. Uh, and thanks, uh, thanks for
0: acknowledging. And I think I think you are basically showing how we should be dealing with criticism. And uh, even though I think uh, Dr. PJ Tam was forceful in his criticism, I think you're acknowledging that he has a space to do that and he has there's a point to what he's saying and there's a role for people like him. Because I, I do think it's important for people to be uh, as critical of the opposition as they are of the, uh, of the government as well. Uh, so it keeps everybody on their, toe, on their toes, I think. Uh, so thanks for that.
1: Absolutely. Absolutely. I yes. love criticism. Right. I think without criticism, we can't, we can't move forward. Right. The right, truth right. is actually the product of disagreement and debate. That is right. how you really find what the truth is.
0: Right. Right. I I don't love criticism, but I think it's necessary. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think it's necessary. I mean, I don't like to criticize, but I know that it makes. You me what a One of the person. things I
1: like to say, you know, uh, to to the teams that I work with, uh, is that if everyone is just agreeing all the time, either you know, everyone is not thinking or everyone is not caring about right. the goal or the mission,
0: or right. both, you know. Yeah, right, right, right,
1: exactly. So and a, I, I, think,
0: the, I think that's such an important point. The fact that people criticize means they care, on, on some level at least, uh, and that needs to be acknowledged. Uh, so the next one is uh, PM Lee's characterization of uh, opposition voters. Well, he we didn't say all opposition voters, but... Uh, it seems that he's referring to some or many opposition voters who are free riders. Uh, and he's saying it, as long as we have those. And how he's defining the free riders is people who want a PAP government but want an opposition presence, right? So they'll vote for the opposition in the hope that there'll be enough people who vote for the government. So they basically, uh, you, you can have your cake and eat it. Uh, so what do you think? Do free riders exist? In Aljunit GRC, uh, the 60% of
1: voters, <laughs> free riders. Well, I have spoken to a lot of constituents in Aljunit GRC and also some from Sengkang GRC, because some people from Sengkang also come to Aljunit, some of the coffee shops in Serangoon. And uh, all of them felt very strongly that they were not free riders at all. Right, and uh, I will I will tell you my take on it. Now, you know, and I'm broadly in agreement with them. I think that you have to respect uh, how voters want to vote. I mean, you need to be committed to build a democratic society. That means that people have the right to choose. And I think the people who uh, vote for the opposition, you could make an argument, as PM Lee made, that they are free riding because they depend on other people to vote for the PAP as a government, but at the same time, you could turn that around and you can make an argument that the people, some of the people voting PAP are also free-riding on those who are voting for an opposition because some of those PAP voters don't want a 100% PAP parliament. They recognize that that's a bad thing, that you need some balance and some competition, uh, so they're depending on voters in other constituencies uh, to vote for the opposition. And many uh, PAP voters and supporters that I've spoken to you know, on the ground, and in other capacities, do tell me that they don't want uh, a 100% PAP parliament or even a political situation where one party is just overwhelmingly dominant and there is no balance, there is no uh, alternative party that can be an insurance policy for Singapore or the PAP could fail. I think many PAP voters and supporters do get that. They do feel strongly about that, and I've been told yeah. that by some of them you know, on the ground. So you can say that, you know, you make an argument to say that, well, these PAP voters are also free riding on those who are voting for the opposition. I would never make that argument. I would never, I mean, none of us in WP or, you know, I think uh, anyone else would really make that argument. I think you can't categorize people as free riders. What we have to say is that you have to respect how people use their vote. And uh, some of the constituents I spoke to, they said that, well, we voted for Workers' Party this time. If the WP doesn't do a good job, we'll vote for another party. Uh, next time that's our right, you know, that is our uh, sovereign uh, right. And I think if anyone wants to come up with the criticism to say that, oh, it's very wrong how you voted, then, you know, are you really respecting the electorate? Are you really respecting the democracy and by extension, uh, the country? You know, For me, I believe that the Singaporean voters do vote rationally and sensibly. At the end of the day, whatever the political outcome we get, I think will be the result of a conscious, deliberate, well thought through, uh, uh, collective choice, you know, made by the voters. And if you look at past electoral outcomes, that, you know, the evidence really seems to support that. You know, people use their votes in a, in a right. careful and considered way. Like, you know? So, I think we have to respect that rather right. than label people.
0: Right. I, I guess I, I, I completely agree with you. But if I just uh, were to push you uh, a little bit on the point, right, uh, it is true that majority of Singaporeans do want, do want to be I do want the PAP to be the government, right? So, in that sense, uh, PM is not wrong factually, right? In the sense that there are people who vote for the opposition while hoping or wanting the PAP to be the government, right? So he's not wrong, just on that regard, in that regard.
1: Well, I would say that many of the people I've spoken to who vote for. Uh, certainly the Workers' Party, because you know on the ground I will interact with uh, many of them, uh, they believe that Singaporeans will exercise the vote rationally. So they believe that their fellow Singaporean citizens and other constituencies will vote for parties that are responsible, or vote for parties that are electable, that are credible, that have cre- uh, credible leaders and candidates who will make uh, good MPs, and they Trust their fellow citizens and other constituencies to not vote for parties that are not credible and so on so forth so when they vote for an opposition party like the workers party you know they have that trust and I suppose you can call it faith or confidence you know in their fellow citizens that you know the outcome that comes out will be right. uh, a rational one one that is uh, good for the country so it really goes back to whether you believe that the voters are capable of making this kind of uh, decision and I certainly believe uh, that they are. Many of the voters who voted for us believe that as well.
0: Right, uh, and I, I, I personally agree with you and I would say that if voters have voted, they have, they have voted, right? I mean you cannot uh, agree with the results in one election and disagree with the results in another election, right? Uh, and also just uh, just the political science literature is full of this in terms of tactical voting versus sincere voting and this is what you get in Plurality of first post systems, you'll get tactical voting in proportional representation systems You are gonna get people who will vote for a party uh, That is closest to their ideology, but in first post systems uh, people vote slightly differently uh, So yeah, so I mean that's and that's the system and and it really uh, shows uh, what you're saying is is in fact uh, quite true right because voters are extremely conscious and rational about the value of their vote. Right, They know exactly how to maximize the gains within the system with their particular vote.
1: Mm. Yes, absolutely. And I think yeah. if you have faith in the Singaporean voters that they would do that, and I certainly do, uh, then you also have to acknowledge that whatever is the outcome that comes about, you know, Singaporean voters would have voted in uh, credible candidates. And we have confidence in our institutions of states that our institutions of state. Will work with whatever parliament has been decided by Singaporean voters, and our institutions will continue to function. And
0: right. the leader
1: of the opposition, Pritam Singh, actually quoted from Mr. Lee Kuan Yew uh, some words exactly right. to that effect. Um, if you have confidence in the people, you believe our institutions will function, then, you know, why, why, right. why
0: did you want to second guess right. that? So I I didn't have this question, but now that you you mentioned the confidence in the people, I mean, you're an economist, right? Uh, And uh, what about uh, the collective action problem, you know, the tragedy of the commons, and, you know, uh, what about all of that, where everyone does the rational thing and uh, an outcome which is not beneficial to society would ensue? So... um, Basically, what I'm saying is how should we have ultimate trust in people to do the right thing, considering everyone is rational?
1: Well, I think that's an excellent point. I mean, uh, I like being I'm an economist and uh, I'm so familiar <laughs> with it, the tragedy of the commons that, that you mentioned. And Economic arguments are very much in vogue uh, just this past couple of months, I think. Right, like, right, right, right. right, And uh, I, I think basically the beauty of democracy is that it is a self Correcting system uh, it's, its its a flawed system, you know. Um, but you know, as as many people have said, it is the worst possible form of government, with the exception of every other known <laughs> form of government. Uh, you know, <laughs> because you can say that people do make mistakes and people exercise their vote foolishly. But then the question is, who knows better?
0: Right? Do we trust right. the
1: benevolent like, aristocratic elite, which right, is uh,
0: exactly.
1: I think was the vision of people like Plato and so on, have right. the uh, philosopher kings? Right. But really, I mean, how, how do you know that the philosopher king won't get it wrong, or won't govern in the interests of him and his family. You know? And I think you know societies have been through this road. That's how and why you know industrial developed countries have some form of electoral democracy. Electoral right. democracy can correct itself. Sometimes it goes wrong, but very often you find that you know that uh, the people do reflect and, and, and correct it when something uh, count, you know counter to what people really wanted comes about.
0: Right, so that, that's an excellent point about the self-correcting mechanism inherent in democracies, uh, which or elections at least, which is not uh, uh, present in other systems, right? So you have the ability to, to act on your bias remorse, for instance, whereas in other systems, you, you do not. So uh, let's yeah, move I'm on to... Actually,
1: uh, sorry, you know, yeah, Karen, carry on. Karen, yeah. So, one, 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 so that's also a weakness of an authoritarian right uh, exactly. system. So exactly. Some people make the case that, hey, you know, you should give up all these rights and freedoms and political right. liberties in exchange for economic goods, in exchange for money, in exchange for a uh, better life. But the problem with that, if you know, you give up your political freedoms to a party or a group uh, in, in exchange for economic benefits, and the economic benefits stop coming, you will not have the power to do anything about it.
0: Right.
1: right. So that's the limitation of those who champion a more authoritarian model. So. Right. I absolutely
0: agree. I mean, and I do not disagree with the argument that authoritarian governments are more efficient. They are designed to be efficient, right? A dictatorial government is, would be the most efficient, just one person deciding. But, uh, but efficiency doesn't mean you get the optimal outcome. Uh, so, the next one is about uh, polarization because some people have said that Singapore society is becoming more polarized and it's not really good to have, to have uh, more opposition parliamentarians in uh well more opposition parliamentarians because the discourse would get more heated and people would be trying to score political points uh and you do not get to solving real issues uh so what would you say to that line
1: of critique well i would say that uh, having a one-party dominant system doesn't mean that things are less polarized because in uh developed society, people are going to have their own views and they should have the right to express their views. And if you have one party kind of dominating and controlling everything to a very great extent, does that mean that you will get unity? Right. No, I don't think that necessarily right, right. follows. That may mean that actually uh, opinions are suppressed. Right. And so that you get the veneer of unity. You right, get what right. seems to be like a unified, not polarized kind of society, but you know that may just be through fear, through dominance, through suppression. And that's not ideal because that is not real unity. Mm. Uh, that is, in fact, polarization. And if you look at uh, examples of very authoritarian types of societies in the past, like the Soviet Union and so on, you know there was a lot of polarization below the surface for a very, very long time. And at a certain point, it just exploded. Right. You know, so very authoritarian systems where you know one group is very dominant are not good at dealing with diversity. I think real unity comes about when you have a democratic society where people can express how they feel, they debate, they discuss, you get an outcome. Not everyone is happy with the outcome, but everyone is happy that the process is a legitimate one, that the process is a democratic, legitimate one. I, the party I wanted may not have won, but, you know, I will support the institutions. And 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 I think that is a much stronger, uh, much, much, much better uh, unity. And, you know, Waleed, the other thing I'll say about polarisation is that, you know, the people get the polarization they deserve. So I think most Singaporeans don't want to see a very polarized uh, right. uh, uh, you know, politics. So if you look at the parties in parliament, uh, I would say that um, the parties in parliament are uh, generally not trying to polarize the society. I mean, certainly I can speak for, for my own party, right. the Workers' Party. Um, we are not a party that tries to pit one group against another. We try to come up with solutions that. Speak to different groups in society and have something to say to many different segments and groups in society, so that we can move forward together. Uh, uh, We 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 don't believe in uh, kind of uh, the 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 brand of politics where you uh, pit one group against another in order to get uh, political points. We say, you know, how can we, you know, build that uh, unity that we need while uplifting those that need more help, addressing injustices and concerns, and so on and so forth, but not in a way that is bitterly divisive, right. uh, not attacking particular people or groups, you know, that, that's a style of politics we champion and I think that uh, that is probably the style of politics that most Singaporeans want to see, like, you know, in the parliament, you know, in their institutions.
0: Right. I, I think you are, you are right on that. That's the kind of politics most Singaporeans want to see. I will not ask you which parties you think are polarising. <laughs> <laughs> and maybe maybe there aren't, or maybe or maybe you don't think any are. So uh, just b- before we get to the final question, I I didn't ask. There were there were a couple of questions uh, in the comment section uh, with regards to the minimum wage. What about the foreign workers? Because I feel like they've they've been for the longest time a neglected part of society. So the minimum wage one thousand three hundred uh, dollars does that apply to foreign workers, or would they? Would there need to be further discussions for foreign workers?
1: Well, for uh, foreign workers, you have work permits, you have employment right. passes and special passes. So, employment passes and special passes do have uh, a minimum wage, uh, so right, to speak, right, like, right, right. Um, mandatory wage floor. Sure. So, you are talking about just uh, work permit holders. Yes. Like. Yeah. Uh, so, for the work permit holders, I think... They are a different part of the labor market and they are highly regulated based on quotas and based on levies. And uh, most of the resident or Singaporean labor force uh, does not uh, compete for those same jobs. So we think that the foreign workers should be uh, under that sort of regime where uh, it is a highly regulated kind of sector. But you know, while it having said that, I think for us in Workers' Party, we do believe that uh, more can be done. To improve the well-being, rights and security, and uh, even mental health of our foreign workers, and Workers Party MPs have spoken about this in Parliament. We've raised suggestions, we've filed questions. I filed a question about uh, what are we doing. Can we do more on the uh, taking care of the mental health? You know, of our foreign workers living in the trees in September. Uh, so that is something that we are very actively engaged in. Uh, we have filed a full motion. In Parliament today, to talk about some of the issues arising from uh, the Patiliani case, and you know, in a right. more broad and general sense, right. uh, and that includes, you know, the access to justice for uh, the most vulnerable in our society. And that includes foreign right. workers, you know, they are hard done by, when they're in a situation where uh, they they need recourse. You know, do they have access to justice? That's one of the issues that we are going to bring up.
0: Right. Okay. Thank you. Thank you for the clarification. So, final one,
1: uh, and
0: I I think this is a big one. So, as a minority uh, MP, and actually you are the majority in your GRC, right? Your GRC team, <laughs> the Chinese, the Chinese are the minority, in general and Muslim. So, uh, but in general, you are a minority in Singapore society, right? So. Uh, is that a difference? A minority MP and uh, a Chinese MP? Do you see a difference? Do you do you think there should be a difference? So there are multiple uh, layers to this question.
1: Well, I think I'll, I'll, I'll not be able to talk to my colleagues, you know, Sylvia and Gerald, in the same way again after listening to you. <laughs> now you may think I'm in mean, the majority. Of the, of the majority. <laughs> but uh, no, I think to answer the uh, question, it's an important question. And uh, I think we always go back to what is said in our pledge, uh, regardless of race. So uh, I think the key here is that you know we have to, I mean, there are two things, there, there are really two big parts here. One is that we have to look at every citizen as a citizen, and we should not um, label and pigeonhole people too much.
0: Mm. Uh,
1: so for example, if you look at uh, the leader of the opposition, but i'm saying you know he's a, a member of the minority community uh, did the workers party believe that that made him unsuitable or ineligible you know to be the, the leader of a party no we we, we did not you know evaluate the person you know based on what they've done their character their attributes and traits so i think that is important but at the same time you have another very you know equally important thing which is we must have diversity so we we should, you know, in our institutions, uh, reflect the diversity of our society. And I think people from different ethnic groups, and also people from uh, both genders, men and women, uh, people from different walks of life, people from different backgrounds, all bring something. They are able to speak about, you know, their experiences. They are able to give a perspective from their particular community. And you know, while all of us are, are members of different communities and we have different identities, right. and probably every one of us is a minority in some sense. Right. Uh, Uh, if you really go down and look at all the different identities, whether it's in terms of, you know, uh, your your uh, PWD status or, you know, the socioeconomic group that you're born into or, you know, the the language that you speak at home. I mean, everyone is a minority in some way. And I think what we have to make sure is that there is sufficient uh, diversity. Uh, And, you know, we can have rational debates and disagreements about what the best way to bring about that diversity is. But I'm sure all of us can agree and can be on the same page that, you know, you, you have to have that ethos of regardless of race, but you also have to have that ethos of, you know, diversity makes us stronger.
0: Right. You know,
1: and our democracy has to reflect everyone uh, in it in order to be strong and resilient. The moment our democracy starts to become unpacked from, you know, certain groups, certain groups become disenfranchised, they feel that the political outcomes don't reflect them, they have no buy-in into that, that is when everything will start fraying and uh, kind of falling apart. Right. I think that's an
0: excellent uh, elucidation. Uh, do you think the GRC is the mechanism where uh, which you maintain this balance between equality of uh, citizens and looking beyond race yet acknowledging race at, that time, uh, at the same time? Because it's not an easy balance to have, right? So do you think the GRC is still relevant? I know the official stance of the party is that uh, you should uh, return to SMCs. But my worry is uh, what uh, Mr. Lee Kuan Yew and then DPM Go Chok Tong, now uh, ESM Go, said that eventually you you will get a situation or you may get a situation uh, where minorities are not elected. And the possibility itself is that enough to justify the existence of G, uh, of the GRC?
1: So we, uh, as, you, as you alluded to, you know, while it be don't support the GRC uh, institution. Our manifesto position is that we should return to single seats and that is a better and more direct kind of representation, uh, that is a better kind of representative democracy uh, because there are various distortions that the GRC system uh, introduces.
0: Right. Uh,
1: but I think you know, the key question here in the wallet is really we have to go back and examine this assumption about whether people are voting along racial lines. Is there evidence that uh, people? Are going to vote along communal lines and racial lines, and therefore certain ethnic groups will be excluded. If you look at elections, there are many examples, and there have been examples even going back to the past. But many examples recently where a uh, candidate from an ethnic minority group uh, won over a candidate from the majority group. You know, I, I probably won't cite the examples. I think you 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 know them better than me, like You're a political scientist. And I think well, maybe you can cite some of them later. you know <laughs> <laughs> you list them all out, you know. Uh, but, but, uh, you know. There are many, many examples, Valid, and I think we all we all uh, know that. So, I think, uh, you know, that is a conversation we can have nationally. If there is evidence of see people voting along ethnic lines, let's have, a, let's have a frank national conversation about that and talk about what is the right institutional solution to that. Uh, there are different models around the world. Right. Uh, There's a particular approach taken in Mauritius, for example, that was right. discussed in parliament in 1988, that is right. different from the GRT approach, there's an approach taken in New Zealand, for example. Uh, and, you know, we can have that, but, but it really goes back to, you know, is there a, a problem to be solved here? Uh, what is the problem statement? Do we feel that uh, as people, we are voting along racial lines? If there's evidence, let's talk about it. But I think more fundamentally, let's also make sure that that doesn't happen. You know, if people are voting along racial lines, that means right. we fail. Uh, as a nation, right, we right. fail to do that. National culture, we fail to live up to the ideals of the pledge, and that's a far bigger problem. Actually, that uh, more fundamental, I would say, right. more fundamental problem that needs to be tackled at the root. Uh, I'm not convinced, in a while that that is a problem that we are facing right now. Of course, some people may say that that is an over-optimistic view, but is there evidence well, that people are voting long racial lines? Right. It really comes down to that. And if there is, then we have to tackle that root and branch.
0: Right. I think I think it's very difficult because uh, to ascertain for sure, uh, no matter. What other service we have? Because firstly, there's social desirability bias in uh, in the in the service, uh, and secondly, people do not only vote on race. even if they do vote on race, that's not the only thing they vote on, right? Ultimately, the party credibility and candidate credibility would matter more than anything else. Uh, but what if race is a factor? Is not d factor? it's not the turning turning point, or is not the most important factor? But it is a factor, and I don't know, uh, I, I mean, I think that at the moment there is not strong evidence that racial voting takes place, uh, but there is evidence that race is a huge factor in society, right? I mean, minorities are still subject to just casual racism, for instance. Uh, so, is it, is it fair for people to extrapolate that? Uh, and, and, you know, the PAP's uh, stance on the GRC, I think, is, is highly rational, right? I think it, it is intended to protect uh, minority representation. Uh, of course, it has the effect of uh, benefiting larger parties as well. I mean, that's that's uh, that's for sure. But I think uh, the intent of protecting minority representation is there. And if societal racism still takes place, would it be fair for them to extrapolate that to uh, the electoral arena? Well, you know, Walid,
1: I, I I think that uh, there's no question that Discrimination is a reality. Uh, there are different kinds of discrimination. Right, I right. think many right. ethnic minorities Singaporeans would have faced right. different forms of discrimination uh, in the job market, which matters a great deal to your life prospects, or even you know microaggression in right. everyday life and so on. And those are real issues, and they really have to be uh, tackled. Uh, and there are you know different solutions uh, for that. Uh, but I I think when, when we talk about Getting representation in parliament—that is a very, very specific kind of a question. You know? Right. So, is the GRC the best solution to that? Uh, is there a problem that needs such a, a drastic or uh, such a, a you know, distortionary kind of solution, uh, or you know, is that problem really uh, not there to that extent? You know, right, that right. You have to depart from uh, single seat, you know, SMC first-past-the-post kind of a system that you see you know, in so many other countries that does not necessarily lead to uh, lopsided right. uh, racial outcomes. I mean, if you look at the UK, for example. I mean, they have right. single seats. They don't have the GRCs. You have a Chancellor of the Exchequer, you know, who is a, an Indian. Right, uh, right. And I think if, if, I'm, if my memory serves me well, I think the previous one was also right, right. Uh, Indian ethnic minority. Uh- Right. Uh, in Canada, you know, for example, you have a lot of ethnic minorities too. But they don't have
0: the ethnic uh, integration <laughs> policy, right? <laughs> so, they, uh, for instance, in UK, you have uh, districts that are 95% or 90% Muslim, for instance, right? In Birmingham or in parts of East London, majority Muslim. And chances are you're going to get a Muslim MP there. And then you get... Uh, in north london you have uh, areas which are majority jewish or a sizable jewish pop, uh, population at least so they still have the communities living in those uh, areas but we do not have that so uh basically my 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 own thing is that the grc's are still relevant but we could uh, we could reduce it to just a maximum of two persons to solve uh, to solve the unintended effects of uh, the grc so so let's say you have about uh, 25 seats uh, based on uh, GRC, so it's 25 times 2, so it'll be 50, let's say. And the other 50 all can be SMCs. Would that be
1: a reasonable compromise, do you think? Well, you know, personally, Walid, I would say, you know, I've come across uh, this idea uh, before. I didn't realise you were... You were one of those championing it, <laughs> so it's good to, good to know that. <laughs> uh, I should have known that actually. But I, didn't. No, I, okay. I, I, I would say that uh, I, I would say that it's um, definitely, uh, you know, in my personal view, an improvement over these right. like, mega grc that we have with five persons or four persons or six persons. Uh, that helps to you know manage some of the the, the distortions that we that we see. That, you know, uh, but I I'm, I'm not convinced that that is necessary to do that. I think uh, ethnic integration policy, yes, we've had that, but, you know, private estates do not have ethnic integration policy. We have a very terrible situation in private estates, not necessarily. Even going back to our discussion on the UK, I don't think it's always the case necessarily in UK or Canada or Australia that, you know, a particular seat where you have a majority in one community always returns an MP from that community and Communities that have a, dif- uh, a different majority would never vote for a minority. I, I'm right. not sure that's the case. I'm not right, sure right. you can see a pattern right. way. So I think it really comes back to you know, is it proven that people are really going to going to vote in this way? And I think if it's proven, we know that that is really the case. Which I'm skeptical about. I don't think it's proven. Right. But if that's the case, then that's a conversation we can have about what's the best way to deal. With right. That.
0: Right. And and also this election, I mean, in your own GRC, three three minorities and. I mean, Mr. Morali and SMC, but many minorities were actually leading GRC. So, it's not that they were riding on the coattails of their uh, Chinese uh, colleagues, but it was the other way around, right? You saw, for instance, SM government, <laughs> or Minister Shanmugam, uh, you have Minister Masagos, you have a lot of, a lot of minorities who are leading GRCs. Uh, and uh, as exactly. you rightly said, I think no one, no one really sees uh, uh, LO Pritam as a as a person from a minority community, they see him as a national figure, as, as is the case with S.M. Taman as well. Uh, so maybe I think a lot more discussion needs to go into the GRC system, even though in principle I'm supportive of it. I'm, I'm, I think the, the data that we have from this election at least has made me reconsider uh, my stance at least. So uh, Mr. Leon, do you have any other things that you wanna get off your chest that you wanna say?
1: Uh, well, there are always the many many things. I want to get off my chest. I think <laughs> also respect your time and the, the time of your your audience. You know. Okay, so
0: so final <laughs> but, one, uh, final one. Who would you who would you uh, suggest I get uh, on the show next time? Other than SM Taman and and Lo Pritam, of course, everybody wants wants them to come on. Uh, who who do you think I should get on?
1: I don't know. I mean, you put me on the spot uh, there, <laughs> but maybe, you know, as a younger Singaporean, I think, you know, uh, be an activist. Oh, okay. You know, Interesting. You know, In a particular course. Right. Uh, I think that you know, I always feel very hopeful when I see younger Singaporeans who are really going out on a limb and doing something for the society, rather right. than just, you know, looking at the, their, their own bread and butter issues, and there are many, many examples of that. So, you know, okay. you can... You have your pick, and I'm sure they all love to, to be on your show. <laughs> okay. That's a
0: bit of an exaggeration, but thanks. Thanks for the talk.
1: You have a way of persuading people,
0: right? <laughs> Very okay, confident so, in you. So, on that note, can you get the young Singaporean Nicosia to come <laughs> on?
1: <laughs> <laughs> I had a funny feeling you were going to say that. You know. That's why I didn't say it. All, right.
0: <laughs> all right,
1: Mr. I'll see what I can do
0: Thank you so much. That was a pleasure. And sorry we exceeded the time, but it was definitely uh, one of the best conversations I've had. Thank you so much for your time.